transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. Uh, no matter where you are in the wild world, people are celebrating the evangelist saint of ancient Ireland. He called himself Patricios. Patricos, patrician, patriarch, father of his people, enlisted father. The last one's the old Latin definition. Originally to describe members of the Roman Senate. Patrick's achievement was, so we are told, the peaceful conversion of the polytheistic, nature-loving, and supernaturally gifted people of Ireland to Roman Christianity. It's something we celebrate today by dumping food coloring in the Chicago River. And the grocery stores pile up the Guinness by the checkout lines. And a lot of people who rarely take a drink go out and do it poorly. Uh, Patrick was maybe the first and last person to bring anything peacefully to Ireland. And maybe that's why the wild Irish of the late 4th and early 5th century let it happen. Somebody was always raiding and colonizing Ireland. The Vikings, Oliver Cromwell, scammy dot-com companies... 15 or 20 years ago, etc. Patrick had to convince the warlords and the kings and especially the wealthy women who supported his ministry that his magic could match the magic of the druids. The druids, for their part, are said to have prophesied Patrick's mission and its killing effect on the old sacred society of Ireland, in which the druids held the roles of priest and judge, magician and mystic. Across the sea will come Ad's head, grazed in the head, his cloak with a hole for the head, his stick bent in the head. He will chant impieties from a table in the front of his house. All his people will answer, so be it, so be it. Ad said because Patrick had that circle of hair scalped off his head. Scissor head, pretty much, is the translation. The druid sure knew how to mock a missionary. Everything from his Roman robes to his pastoral staff, a symbol of the bishops. 
His followers would become the mindless amen crowd, but because he was crazed in the head, he would overturn the religious and social order. But only with the help of an earlier Patrick, Palladios or Palladius. We don't hear much about Palladios, the bishop from Gaul who was working in Ireland first. Because most of his deeds and personal history were conflated with the later career of Patrick. Nothing is ever as it seems. Nothing including the supposed peaceful mission of Patrick. Because his real title, according to 7th century Irish biographers, was Magnus Sussitus, apparently Latinized from Old Proto-Celtic, but now figured to mean something like Apollo the War King. And it is said that he ruled four great houses of Druids. So tonight, in tribute to the Druids who were replaced by black-clad priests and empty theologies... I want to tell you some stories. Ghost stories, you could call them. From those ancient Celtic lands that gave us the she, the good people, the gentry, the leprechauns and the banshee, the goddess Bridget and the frightful Puka, the dim kingdom, the Dim Kingdom and the Tua de Donum. This tale, told by uh, Michael H. late in the 19th century, comes from William Butler Yeats' essential collection of Irish mysticism and folklore, The Celtic Twilight. Many a poor man from Finn McCool to our own days has had some such adventure to tell of, writes Yates. For those creatures, the good people, love to repeat themselves. At any rate, the storytellers do. In the times when we used to travel by the canal, said Michael H., I was coming down from Dublin. When we came to Mullingar, the canal ended, and I began to walk. And stiff and fatigued I was after the slowness. I had some friends with me, and now and then we walked, and now and then we rode in a cart. And so on, till we saw some girls milking cows. And stopped to joke with them. And after a while, we asked them for a drink of milk. We have nothing to put it in here, they said. But come to the house with us. We went home with them and sat round the fire talking. 
After a while, the others went and left me, loath to stir from the good fire. I asked the girls for something to eat. There was a pot on the fire, and they took the meat out and put it on a plate and told me to only eat the meat that came off the head. When I had eaten, the girls went out, and I did not see them again. It grew darker and darker, and there I still sat, loath as ever to leave the good fire. But after a while, two men came in, carrying between them a corpse. When I saw them coming, I hid behind the door, says one to the other, putting the corpse on the spit. Old turn the spit, says the other. Michael H., come out of that and turn the meat. I came out all of a tremble and began turning the spit. Michael H., says the one who spoke first, if you let it burn, we'll have to put you on the spit instead. And on that they went out. I sat there trembling and turning the corpse till towards midnight. The men came again, and the one said it was burnt, and the other said it was done right. But having fallen out over it, they both said they would do me no harm that time. And sitting by the fire, one of them cried out, Michael H., can you tell me a story? Divil a one, said I, on which he caught me by the shoulder and put me out like a shot. It was a wild, blowing night. Never in all my born days did I see such a night. The darkest night that ever came out of the heavens. I did not know where I was for the life of me. So when one of the men came after me and touched me on the shoulder with a... Michael H., can you tell a story now? I can, says I. Then he brought me, and putting me by the fire, says, Begin. I have no story but the one, says I. That I was sitting here, and you two men brought in a corpse and put it on the spit and set me turning it. That'll do, says he. You may go in there and lie down on the bed. And I went, nothing loath. And in the morning, where was I but in the middle of a green field? The good people we should recognize are far more than the impish and solitary leprechaun occasionally witnessed on an overgrown path, beckoning to the curious. They are beautiful women, too, and frightening men carrying a human corpse and threatening murder. Where there is nothing but a green field, they can make a house lit up on a dark night and unaccountable orbs of light flying in strange formation over the countryside. They appear in military uniform and seemingly overwhelming strength in numbers. And in a blink of an eye, it's all gone. More than a century ago, fresh from San Diego and a degree at Stanford and seeking a degree from Jesus College at Oxford, the young American scholar Walter Evans Wentz traveled the back roads and villages of six Celtic lands, 
collecting the personal experiences of real people, such as a man who lived his whole life in County Sligo beneath Ben Bulban, and he described his many encounters with the gentry. The folk are the grandest I have ever seen. They are far superior to us, and that is why they are called the gentry. They are a military aristocratic class, tall and noble appearing. They are a distinct race between our own and that of the spirits, as they have told me. Their qualifications are tremendous. We could cut off half the human race, but would not, they said. For we are expecting salvation. And... I knew a man three or four years ago whom they struck down with paralysis. Their sight is so penetrating that I think they could see through the earth. They have a silvery voice, quick and sweet. The music they play is the most beautiful. They take the whole body and soul of young and intellectual people who are interesting, transmuting the body to a body like their own. I asked them once if they ever died, and they said, No, we are always kept young. Once they take you and you taste food in their palace, you cannot come back. You are changed to one of them and live with them forever. They are able to appear in different forms. One once appeared to me and seemed only four feet high and stoutly built. He said, I am bigger than I appear to you now. We can make the old young, the big small, the small big. One of their women told all the secrets of my family. She said that my brother in Australia would travel much and suffer hardships, all of which came true, and foretold that my nephew, then about two years old, would become a great clergyman in America, and that is what he is now. Besides the gentry, who are a distinct class, there are bad spirits and ghosts, which are nothing like them. My mother once saw a leprechaun beside a bush, hammering. He disappeared before she could get to him. But he also was unlike one of the gentry. Everywhere the Irish went, they brought their fairy faith, their folklore, their customs... So that in the gold rush, a century and a half ago now, when hundreds of thousands of Irish arrived in California, the Celtic beliefs quickly merged with the Indian and Spanish lore of the West. And the Irish, who had a bad time of it for much of the 800 years between the Norman lords and the Great Famine, suddenly found themselves in a new position. An Irish miner, it turned out, had better than average luck finding gold. And so began the phrase, the luck of the Irish. Because they were scorned in the towns and the cities and the mining camps due to their poverty and cultural differences and especially their Catholicism, The phrase luck of the Irish became popular throughout California and Nevada 
and eventually the whole English-speaking world. It was something of an insult. A newly arrived Irish miner could not have hit the mother load through skill and smarts and hard work. It had to be dumb luck and nothing more. And yet the most successful mine operators continued to be of Irish or Scots-Irish ancestry. George Hurst, for example. As in the prospector and investor who picked the biggest winners of them all, the Comstock Lode and the Virginia Mountains of northern Nevada, the Anaconda Mine in Montana, the Ontario Mine in Park City, Utah. His luck, if you can boil down a lifetime of making the right decisions to luck, was such that he acquired the San Francisco Examiner because the previous owner owed Hearst a significant gambling debt. So the legend goes, anyway. And so began the golden literary age of California. Mark Twain, Ambrose Bierce, Jack London. Along with the worst tendencies of muckraking newspaper journalism which developed more or less concurrently around the English-speaking world from Fleet Street to the New York world. A two-penny paper filled with wild headlines and incredible stories that influenced William Randolph Hearst especially. But the Irish were not the only Celts in uh, Sierra Nevada. Cornwall, a land famed for its miners and mineral wealth going back to the Phoenician sea trade, gave their own culture and supernatural lore to the silver and gold mines deep beneath the Earth's surface. Pixies, or piskies, arrived with the Cornish in the form of knockers, or tommy knockers. These capricious sprites of the mine tunnels could be helpful or not, depending on how you treated them. Leaving offerings of food or libation was a way to keep them on your good side. And their telltale knocking led many a miner to a deep, rich vein of ore. But sometimes the rapid knocking was an alarm to get everyone to the surface because a mine shaft was about to collapse. A lot of Cornish miners arrived in the Sierra with family relations already established. And Cornish Jack became a nickname for Californians from Cornwall. Because somebody always had a cousin Jack or a cousin Jenny that they could send for. Usually a skilled hard rock and water pressure miner from the old Celtic country. Thousands of their descendants still live in the towns and foothills of the Sierra today. Some describe the knockers as spirits making sounds, something like the poltergeist of Germany. But the variations in experience is what keeps the supernatural world always at a distance from our workaday world. Here's a description of the Cornish knockers from a newspaper called the Daily Mining Gazette. Knockers were about two feet tall and were quite grizzled. They dressed in mining clothes, which included a toll, an old-style mining hat made of thick felt. Very mischievous in nature, knockers were usually responsible for stealing tools left carelessly about and for taking food. 
Who the knockers are is still debated in Cornwall. Some say they are the ghost of people not bad enough to go to hell, but were not worthy of heaven. Others assert that they are the pre-Christian gods who were sprinkled with holy water, which caused them to shrink. Still others say that they are the spirits of virtuous pagans. Let us now hear from John Boylan, who lived near the ancient seat of the Irish High Kings at the Hill of Tara. said to be a whole tribe of little red men living in Glen Otter between Ringlestown and Tara and on long evenings in June they have been heard they have been seen serenading round the western slope of Tara dressed in ancient Irish costumes and unlike the little red men these fairy races are warlike and given to making invasions. Long processions of them have been seen going round the king's chair, an earthwork on which the kings of Tara are said to have been crowned. And then they would appear like soldiers of ancient Ireland in review. Let's finally tell of the fairy creatures. The shadowy things we might describe today as big black cats or the stinking red-eyed monsters of the wilderness, or any number of fanciful apparitions that will never be captured, living or dead, for they move easily within and without our materialist reality. In the course of another conversation, Stephen, a piper of Galway, pointed to a rocky knoll in a field not far from his home and said... I saw a dog with a white ring around his neck by that hill there, and the oldest men round Galway have seen him too, for he has been here for one hundred years or more. He is a dog of the good people and only appears at certain hours of the night. That one you'll find in Evan Wentz's The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. And we have time, I think, for a last contribution from Yates. A few years ago, a friend of mine told me of something that happened to him when he was a young man and out drilling. They were but a car full and drove along a hillside until they came to a quiet place. They left the car and went further up the hill with their rifles and drilled for a while. As they were coming down again, they saw a very thin, long-legged pig of the old Irish sort. And the pig began to follow them. One of them cried out, as a joke, that it was a fairy pig. And they all began to run to keep up with the joke. The pig ran too, and presently, how nobody knew, this mock terror became real terror. And they ran as for their lives. When they got to the car, they made the horse gallop as fast as possible. But the pig still followed. Then one of them put up his rifle to fire, but when he looked along the barrel, he could see nothing. Presently, they turned a corner and came to a village. 
They told the people of the village what had happened, and the people of the village took pitchforks and spades and the like and went along the road with them to drive the pig away. But when they turned the corner, they could not find anything. The fairy pig had disappeared. I'm a poor man, and I want money the worst way. And I'll tell you the truth, if you give me a thousand pounds tomorrow morning, I wouldn't take a spit with a spade in it. Well, what about what about the fairy field now, where they've changed it to? The fairy field and the rahin is all the same to me. I wouldn't meddle with it. And God between us and all harm, I don't want to see anyone around here meddling with it. That, with that enchanted place. and across the great Mojave wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio, and I am your host, Ken Lane. The moody music heard throughout our broadcast, those are the soundscapes composed and performed by the High Desert Zone Red, Blue, Black, Silver. And I believe starting off tonight with some help from S.W. Lawden on the drums. Well, it's springtime, and I am happy to be getting on the desert road, which is the best feeling in the world. I'm headed to Utah, Green River, Moab. I will be broadcasting the show from KZMU-FM two Saturdays from now, I believe. I need to stop in Las Vegas on the way back and sign some books at the Writer's Block in the Arts District downtown. And I probably need to drive to all the independent bookstores in Nevada, the Eastern Sierra, the Sierra Nevada. Just those two words, Sierra and Nevada, and various configurations forever. You can find us online at DesertOracle.com where you can find back issues of our occasional journal, also called Desert Oracle. And support this show however you like. We do appreciate it. Our Desert Oracle Volume 1 paperback is available at bookstores everywhere, especially the American Southwest. And thanks for putting us again on the LA Times bestsellers list for yet another week. Well, I'm gonna close down the radio studio and maybe head on down to O'Malley's Bar for a glass and a pint. Why not? Enjoy. 
enjoy your weekend in moderation, of course. A good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>